Good morning. Uh, several have said something about the uh, television program. You've accidentally bumped into it on Saturday evening. Uh, that's not by mistake. Just kind of a general rule of thumb. I'm learning uh, as we are uh, given this slot. Typically, what we have contracted for is on Sunday at 10:30, uh, while many of us are in worship. But whenever we're preempted, like the Olympics are preempting uh, regular programming, that's national programming, they will put us on Saturday night at 6.30. So if you're looking for us even next week, I believe the Olympics will continue going on next week, uh, we'll be on this Saturday night at 6.30. So uh, for any of those that uh, are interested and are letting others know about it, please let them know this. Um, When I was on social media, I could have more directly uh, given that message, but I'll give it right here, right now. The American Association of Retired People tell us that more than one in five people, 21.3%, have provided caregiving need to an adult or a child with special needs in the last year. That number is 53 million people. It's an astounding number, and what's even more astounding is that it is a number that is almost 10 million higher than it was just five years ago. The American Psychological Association, the APA, actually puts that number much higher than the number I just shared with you. They say it's 65.7 million people. That constitutes 29% of all American citizens or 31% of all U.S. households. That being the case, then statistically speaking, we could probably say that there are almost one caregiver or more in every pew of this auditorium. And the need seems to only be increasing for at least two reasons. Number one, the baby boomer population is growing older and is in need of greater care. And not only that, it appears that there are some workplace shortages in certain industries related to this, whether the healthcare industry or the long-term service industry. And as we continue to dig into this, we find some other things that are helpful and relevant for us to know. A 2019 John Hopkins study revealed that only one in ten caregivers of a family member or friend, some adult or a child with needs, only one in ten have had some kind of training or education to help them with that need. And when it comes to caregiving, as we mentioned those industries a moment ago, the number of paid long-term caregivers is only a small fraction of the total caregivers that are giving care in this nation. Almost half of those who are giving care are doing so for a long period of time. 50% have been doing this for two years or longer. And it's intense. 30% of those who are giving care are devoting 20 hours or more a week to the giving of that care. Well, from a biblical perspective, we can find several in the Bible who were providing care for other adults, and especially their family members. I think the one that stands out the most in my mind is in the Old Testament. When you think about the close relationship that David and Jonathan had with one another, they made a covenant with each other, and David promised to take care of Jonathan's children if there was ever a need to do so, and there was. 
Because Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson, a man by the name of Mephibosheth, was injured in an accident and was lame in both of his feet. And so David provided for his care with Saul's servant Ziba. That's who was the caregiver. And Mephibosheth sat at David's table to eat his meals day after day. Not only that, but when the Gibeonites rightfully sought revenge for Saul's treachery during Saul's reign, they wanted the death of David's sons and descendants. Seven of them. And David allowed that, except it with one exception. Because of the covenant that he made with regard to Mephibosheth, he would not turn him over to them. If you look in your Bible, you'll find that there are family members who are taking care of the sick and those who are demon-possessed in both the Old and the New Testament. But I believe that we can find some of the most helpful information with those who are tasked, and as I look out on this auditorium today, that's several of you, with giving care to someone in your home or someone outside of your immediate family. It's one of Jesus' better-known parables. You remember that Jesus tells this parable saying that a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among thieves and they stripped him and robbed him and departed, leaving him half dead. And it happened that there was a certain priest who went by that way and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. A Levite also, when he came to where he was, saw him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, when he came down the road, he saw him and had compassion on him. And he went to him and he ministered to him, pouring oil and wine in his wounds and bandaged him and put him on his own animal and took him to an inn. And there he took care of him. And the next day he gave the innkeeper two denarii and said to him, whatever you spend more, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you you suppose was a neighbor to the man who fell among the robber's hands? And the lawyer said to him, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus answered and said, you go and do likewise. As we look at our text in Luke chapter 10, verse 30 through 37, there are some preliminary observations that I would like for us to make before we get into the principles for those who are given the care of someone who is in need. First of all, as we come to this parable, we see that anyone can be in the position of needing help. I think about the man who is the victim in this story in verse 30. Do you think that when he woke up that morning that he said, I'm going to be a victim of a robbery and I'm going to be in need of help and care? I imagine that was the last thing on his mind. When we look at how much the numbers are growing of those who are needing care... How many people are for the first time this year going to need somebody to take care of them who did not need it before 2021? Given the overall total of number, we'd have to say that an educated guess would be millions of people. Any one of us might find ourselves eventually in a position of needing care. A second preliminary observation to make is is that not everybody is willing to uh, step in and help. Verse 31 and 32. The the priest and the Levite are presumably of the same ethnicity and the same religion of this man. And they could look on the fact that he was suffering and he was hurting. And they could pass by without doing anything. I submit to you that in the dynamic of providing care for those who are in need. That the caregivers are going to have relatives. And they're going to have others who they believe should be helping. Who say that they cannot or who will not step in to care. 
But a third observation that we will notice in this, the beginning of this parable in verse 31 through 33 is, is that each one faced a choice. The priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan were all confronted with the same situation. Each one made a choice, and there was a consequence of the choice that each of them made. I want to focus on those who devote themselves to you who are helping a family member or a friend, somebody who has ongoing care needs. What do you do when you have to be a caregiver? I'd like for us to go to this great parable of Jesus, and I'd like to notice four principles that can help. Number one, I suggest to you that uh, when you are in a position to give care, that you need to engage The engagement of the Good Samaritan can be measured in three actions that he took. He started giving care in a certain point and in a certain way. And you'll notice that his engagement consisted of three steps that he took. Number one, there was an encounter. Number two, there was an assessment. And number three, there was an emotional response to engage in this needful practice. There are three steps for the caregiver. First of all, engagement requires an encounter. Appreciate Brady reading 1 Timothy chapter 5. When's the last time that was a scripture reading for a Sunday morning sermon? When do we talk about the needs that that widows and others have and our uh, responsibility to them? And the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8 that if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for those of his own household, this one has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The Apostle Paul says that there are going to come circumstances in your life when there are people close to you where you have an opportunity to serve them and to give them the care that they need. Often that that opportunity comes in our own home. But you'll notice that the Apostle Paul says is that the care that you provide for is an expression of your faith to God. James chapter 1 and verse 27 says to us uh, that pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is to visit the fatherless and the widows in their afflictions and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Now that word visit there does not simply mean to go and pay a visit to. To go by and stop by and say, hey, how are you doing? But the idea is to, uh, with the intent of help, I find it interesting that the word that is translated, uh, uh, the the one who visits in James 1.27, is from the same word family as the word overseer, which describes one of the functions of an elder in the local church. In the parable on the judgment, in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 35, Jesus says, I was sick and you visited me. See what Jesus is saying there? That when you help the least of humanity, you are helping him. The engagement on the part of the Good Samaritan began with the encounter. He came up to him. And in seeing that, he is going to provide care. It leads us to the second part of engagement. Engagement involves the seeing of the need. Seeing the need of the one who is hurting. It's remarkable that this man is going along the road and he goes up to him and he sees. That means to perceive with the the side of the eye. But do you notice that the same word is used in the case of the other two men? They saw the same thing that he saw. How could it be that they saw the same thing and they didn't do anything, but the Samaritan did? He had an eye toward the needy that was going to move him to action. He was looking differently than they looked. 
His look was to assess, to say, what can I do? You know, you think about what caregivers do. They're, they're assessing. They are looking at the need of the one who is hurting or the one who needs that long-term care. And as they look at them, they realize that there's a cost to be paid and they are willing to count that cost. You know, Jesus gives a, a variety of illustrations with regard to this. In Luke chapter 14, verse 28, Jesus gives the illustration of a man who wants to build a tower. And before he builds it, he sits down and he calculates the cost, lest he uh, has enough to build the foundation and he's not able to, to finish it. And that all those that pass by begin to ridicule him and say, this man began to build and is not able to finish. Or what about a king who is going to go into battle against another king? How does he not first sit down and and count the cost to see whether or not with his 10,000 he has enough to withstand the 20,000 that are coming to him? And if he does not, he sends out well in advance a delegation to seek peace. Luke 14, verse 28 through 32. There is a cost to be paid. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But as we look at the Samaritan, he reminds us of the caregiver who knows that there's going to be a physical and emotional toll to be paid. There's going to be an expenditure of cost financially. And there's going to be an expenditure of time. And so engagement, that is the willingness to say that I'm going to see somebody in need in my own family, close friend, whatever it is, or and then I'm going to respond to that by seeing what I can do to help. But then I also notice that engagement requires emotion. We will notice that there's a difference between the other two men. They looked, they saw, and they just passed by on the other side. They were indifferent. They were negligent. But what about the, what's the difference between them and the great, uh, the good Samaritan? It says that when he saw him, he felt compassion. That, that heart of compassion literally refers to the inward parts. He felt something inside. And that feeling inside led him to this response. He had compassion. Or as Jesus is going to get the lawyer to say later, he's going to show mercy. When we understand the great need that exists, we're going to respond with a heart of care. That's what a disciple, a follower of Jesus is going to do when confronted with those kinds of needs. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3 and verse 12, Wherefore, as those who are chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion. Or we'll look at Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. If there is any uh, consolation or compassion of Christ, seek the interests of others. Philippians 2, 1 and 4. If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes up his heart, literally his inward parts against him, how does the love of God dwell in him? If you're in a position of giving care, may I submit that you have already gone through the process of engagement. You encountered the need. You saw the hurt. And you felt emotion for them. It's what's caused you to step in. But second, and this is more difficult, and it is attached to the last observation, is that those who give care, what must you do? You must also expend. You've got to expend. Verse 34 and 35 shows that the good Samaritan is willing to pay some price. You know, there is a price to be paid in caregiving. The statistics are out there that tell us how much one has to pay or what it costs to do this. Somebody who provides that care, and that's one in seven adults according to Pew Research, they're providing unpaid assistance to those who are struggling and hurting with their needs. And that cost can be measured in a lot of different ways. 
A, a national research that was done by AARP indicates the various ways in which one must pay, expend time and, and money. They indicate that with regards to money, you're going to have to expend your own personal resources so often for health care expenses or personal care expenses or legal fees or uh, doctor's bills. And they say that the average person who is providing care for someone else is expending at least 80 minutes every day to provide for the care of the one in need, whether it's changing their clothes or bathing them or taking them to doctor's appointments. And so often they are having to take off time from work, whether paid or unpaid leave or vacation days. And that's not to mention the great struggle that one has emotionally, the wear and tear when they are giving care to somebody whose needs are ongoing and they're protracted. What you see here is... The good Samaritan didn't approach this situation concerned about what it was going to cost him. He realized that. And you know, for those of us who are loved ones, family members and friends, to those who are spending day after day, week after week, giving care to somebody who's in need, it's good for us to remember Galatians 6 and verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And if you're somebody who's providing care, remember that others may not know what you're going through. They may not realize the degree of of struggling and suffering that you're doing in helping someone else. And will you remember what Solomon said in the long ago in Proverbs 17, 17, that a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. What do you do when you're giving care for somebody in need? The third thing that I would suggest to you is, is that you evaluate. In verse 36, the climax of the parable is there. And the lawyer had begun this parable by saying, you know, he's asking Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus says, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is likened to it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer, willing to justify himself, says, and who is my neighbor? Jesus tells the parable, and he says, which of the three do you think was a neighbor to the one who fell into the robber's hands? Do you see what he's doing there? He's saying to the lawyer and to everybody who reads that story subsequently, I want you to look at these three individuals. And I want you to tell me who meets heaven's definition of a helper. What Jesus wants the lawyer to do and what's us to do is not just take information. He wants us to apply that information and to evaluate ourselves. You know, when it comes to providing help for others... There's a need for us to to make evaluation. And we can evaluate, and it's the the purpose of another lesson, to talk about the priest and the Levite and how God would evaluate them and how God would want the lawyer to evaluate them. But in this particular parable, he is showing us the Good Samaritan as the standard. And so he says, I want you to evaluate yourself. Christian psychologist Gary Collins says that the number one principle in people helping is for the people helper to evaluate their own attitudes, their own values, and their own beliefs. I know that the story is not explicit with this principle, but the principle is there. The Good Samaritan is providing help, but there's a need for him to guard and to protect his own spiritual strength and help. I like what Colin says about the Christian helper. He gives us all of these qualities of the helper in Galatians chapter 6. That first of all, he is gentle. 
gentle even if the situation is long and difficult. That he's vigilant. That the Christian helper is going to look to their own spiritual strength that they not fail even in in providing help for others. That they're willing. That they're going to reach out and do it even if it costs them in some way. They're humble. That is, that they see that their strength and that their power comes from God. And so it's not going to give them a sense of superiority or a holier-than-thou manner toward maybe those who aren't giving help like they should. They're self-examining. They're looking at themselves with humility. And they're saying that everybody's responsible for their own behaviors. Verse 5. They're realistic, knowing that this task can be wearying, especially the longer it goes on. Verse 9. And they're patient. They understand that in this task, they are are charged with doing what's good. And so they're also responsible. They're going to see the need to help those who are in need, especially those who are believers. It's not under the purview of Jesus' parable. But you know, the Samaritan might have legitimately said, there are other people who passed this man by, they did not help. And he would have to guard his own heart spiritually, don't you think? Because it's very easy, or it would be very easy for him to say, I'm a, I'm a different ethnicity. I'm not close to this man. And I'm the one who's paying the price. You know, sometimes with those who are giving care for others, it can become a spiritual struggle. You know, the Bible talks about the, the, the way that bitterness can come about in our lives. And we've got to guard against that. The Apostle Paul says that we're to put off bitterness and to be uh, tender-hearted, to be kind, and to be forgiving toward others. Because that disposition can come. That can be surly and sour in our face and put a bitterness in our speech. What the Apostle Paul said to slaves who had no uh, um, option but to give help should be true of the Christian who does have a choice. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as unto the Lord and not unto men. For it is of the Lord that you shall receive the reward of the inheritance. You serve the Lord Christ, and those that do wrong shall bear the consequences of their wrongdoing, and that without partiality. It's important for the caregiver to understand that they need to evaluate themselves, their mindset, their attitude, and to realize that they're serving the Lord and serving the one that's there and needs the help. But if you're also a family member of somebody who is providing the help, what can you do in evaluating yourselves? What you can do is to provide some time, short or long, where you step in and, and, and you take their place to allow them some time away from that task that they've been doing for so long. Or maybe you cannot. It's impossible for you to physically do that. Perhaps what you can do is that you can provide pay for them or or to show them how much you appreciate what they're doing. Or maybe gift cards or other acts of appreciation that says to them, look, what you're doing is important and I appreciate that you're standing on the front line and doing this. Evaluation is helpful. What do you do if you must give care? Well, I believe there's one other thing that we can look at and that is that we need to empathize. The lawyer doesn't want to answer Jesus' question. It must have pained him that Jesus would make the hero of his story the Samaritan. And it's very obvious what he should say. He says, which of the three proved to be a neighbor to him? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. Empathy. Feeling for another. Putting yourself in the other person's place. It's from a German word that means to feel with or to feel into a situation. We know what empathy is, don't we? You ever been in a car with somebody 
And as they're driving down the road that you've stomped your foot into the floor because you feel the need that they have to, to apply the brakes, you're feeling into the situation. You understand what we're seeing here with this caregiving scenario is that when you're providing need, and you see it in the Good Samaritan, there is a need to feel into the situation. When you're providing care, to ask yourself the question, if I was in their place, how would I feel? How would I view this situation? If the shoe was on the other foot and I was where they are, how would I want to be treated? Empathy is so powerful as an attribute of of the child of God, the disciple of Christ. That feeling of warmth that shows itself even in our facial expressions and in our tone of voice and our eye contact and our other nonverbal communication that we make that tells in a very literal way that actions speak louder than words. When you're struggling and hurting and you need somebody else to take care of you, it's not a good feeling. But what you want when you're in a situation like that is to know that the one who's giving the care truly understands. For all you baseball people, back in April of 2007, two all-star starting pitchers, the New York Yankees, went on the disabled list at the same time. And so Joe Torrey, who was the manager at the time, called up a 24-year-old Texan named Chase Wright. He was a, a rising star in the organization, and his first start was a decent one. He went five innings. His second start was historic, truly. In the third inning of that contest, he faced uh, Manny Ramirez and uh, Mike Lowell and J.D. Drew and Jason Veritek, and they went back to back to back to back hitting home runs against him. He, he, he established a major league record, a record that nobody would want. To add insult to injury, Joe Torre sent him down later that day. He would only get one more major league start in his career and then never pitch in the majors again. Of all the things that happened that day, one of the most interesting was that he received a card of encouragement. For you real baseball fanatics, you might know the name Paul Foytak, and you'd have to be a little bit older too. Paul Foytak had established that undesirable record 44 years before. The only two pitchers of this day who have given up four consecutive home runs to batters in an inning. Foytak said, son, I know what you're going through. Don't let it get you down. Had to mean more to him, knowing that Foytak knew exactly how he felt. But how commendable that Foytak, who didn't have to, reached out to encourage him anyway. You know, Jesus shows us what true empathy is, doesn't he? In the context, the Hebrews writer is talking about the high priest under the old law and how they could be gentle and compassionate with the folks that they ministered to because they themselves were sinners. They knew what it was like. But in Hebrews 4.14, the Hebrews writer says, We do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and that we might have grace for help in time of need. Jesus shows us the attitude that we can take to put ourselves in the place of others. Maybe you're saying, Neil, why would you preach a sermon like this? Because there are some of us here who are not a caregiver, maybe some of us who will never be a caregiver. You know, I go through the same thing when I think about preaching a sermon on marriage and there are single people in the audience. Or I preach a sermon on child rearing and there are those who don't or maybe cannot have children. We are all part of a family. 
And when the family struggles, any part of the family, all the part of the rest of the family should struggle too. We should love and encourage and support those who are in these various stages of life because even though we are children of God who have been lifted above this world, we're not immune from the things that the world goes through. We're going through the same things they are. There are some of you who are carrying that burden. And maybe you've thrown up your hands more than once and you've said, what do I do? May I encourage you to look at the the Good Samaritan. It's interesting to me that this parable does not say how the priest or the Levite felt toward the Good Samaritan. Does it deal with how the Good Samaritan dealt or felt about the priest and the Levite? You know what else we don't know? We don't know how the victim felt toward the Good Samaritan. Jesus doesn't focus on that at all. What he does is he focuses on the Good Samaritan and holds him up as an example of one who, can, who has the opportunity, who uses the opportunity to help those in need. You know, when it comes to the things that are placed into our hands, will you be encouraged that faithfulness is something that's rewarded, Revelation 2 and verse 10, and faithfulness is something that's required, 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 2. But if you are somebody who is in that caregiving role, will you remember that you can't outgive God? 1 Timothy chapter 5 indicates that as you help those in your life, you're doing it as if you were doing it for God. He is not unjust to forget your work and your love that you have shown in ministering to and in still ministering to the saints, Hebrews 6 and verse 10. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 10, 42, that even a cup of water that's given in His name for His sake is not going to be missed by the all-seeing eyes of the Heavenly Father. The tasks that fall into our hands, we must be faithful. There is an opportunity. There is something that falls into all of our hands in which we must all be faithful. We must be faithful to the stewardship of our souls. And we all have an opportunity. And that opportunity is to hear what God's Word has to say and respond to that, either in belief or disbelief, and in believing that Jesus is the Son of God, repenting of sins and being baptized to have those sins washed away. And the privilege and the opportunity, when we depart from the path of righteousness as a child of God, to come back home, to be restored, to repent of sins, to confess those faults one to another and pray to God for forgiveness. You know, when we think about this faithfulness, when we think about this, that's ours, this privilege that we have, if you need to become a child of God or if you need to be restored, do you realize that in doing that, not only will you be doing something for yourself, but you may be doing something for the people in your life? There may be friends and family members who are looking to and are guided by your example and by your becoming a child of God or coming back home. You may be providing them the courage that they need to make the same decision. And so if you need to respond to the invitation, do it for yourself. But do it also for your family. If this is your invitation, we would encourage you to come right now as we stand and sing.